Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nicole Mercier. Nicole is the Assistant Vice Chancellor and Managing Director for Technology Transfer at Washington University in St. Louis. In her role at WashU, Nicole is responsible for all office operations and strategy, including licensing and business development, finance, and administrative operations. Prior to her time at WashU, Nicole was a senior contracts manager at Monsanto and a licensing associate at Children's Hospital in Boston. Nicole received her bachelor's and master's degree in biology from Clark University and her PhD in biomedical sciences from the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it's really great to have you take part in the podcast, Nicole. And generally, I like to start things off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in St. Louis and at Washington University? Sure. Um, it's, it's always fun to talk about this because when I was in grad school, um, so my PhD is in cell biology and I was at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And I was surrounded by, of course, all these amazing scientists. And I would look at them and think, why don't I love this as much as they love this? And why do I feel very differently about how I approach writing papers? Um, whereas me, it was tracking a means to an end and other people got very excited about, oh, I have another figure. And um, so it was a lot of soul searching in grad school that led me into tech transfer. And I was really lucky to get a, an internship role at the University of Massachusetts tech transfer office. And that parlayed me um, taking a job when I graduated into at Children's Hospital in Boston. Um, so that's where I started my career. It was a lot of fun to work in Boston. And then my husband came to me and said, hey, um, here's the places I'm looking at a postdoc. And I said, that's fantastic. You have some in Boston. And he said, well, I do, but I really think I need to go to St. Louis. They have an incredible um microbiology department there. And uh, that's where I'm leaning towards doing my postdoc. And at that time, I thought, well, that's not a big deal. That's three or four years. So 15 years later, we are still in St. Louis. Um, it's been a good journey for us. And I'm grateful when I do get to go back to New England. And I'm grateful I still have family there. So that's my journey into tech transfer. It was a little bit unexpected. Um, but one of the things that I love about Having started my career in Boston and now being in St. Louis is when I was in Boston, I sort of saw this vibrant ecosystem and moving to St. Louis, I was able to experience one grow. Um, so it's been a lot of fun just seeing where St. Louis was 15 years ago to where it is now. Oh, yeah. That sounds like an amazing experience. Yes. And it's fun to go back to Boston and see because it's even more vibrant. Oh, it's 
Boston's a great city, great city and a lot of tech transfer there. It's really vibrant, yeah. but it sounds like St. Louis is doing really well though, too. Excellent. Um, and, you know, we are constantly on all the lists for, you know, startup cities, up and coming startup cities. So really, um, it has grown in the 15 years that I've been here uh, and it's been fun to be part of that. I can imagine. And I think that's a good segue to talking about your office, because obviously your office has probably been very instrumental in that growth. So can you tell us a little bit about your office and perhaps how it's structured? Yeah, sure. So we are um, still considered a cradle to grave office, uh, but I would say with a lot of support structures. And so um, we have 10 licensing people on sort of the business development, looking at invention disclosures, the traditional, you know, soup to nuts there. But then we have other groups in the office that will support them. So a few years ago, we pivoted and started hiring uh, patent agents. So we hired one. It worked out so well that we hired a second one. And that is one support structure that we have for the licensing team. So that in-house, I'm not getting charged for the time. They're here on my dime. Um, They've been asset, not just the licensing team, but the faculty. And then um, we built a marketing cluster. So we uh, have both sort of brand and communications, and then also a tech marketing function that we've built out. So the licensing team doesn't feel like they have to do all of the pieces of marketing, which always falls to the bottom because there's everything else urgent on the plate. Um, So, you know, those are the two basic pillars that support our licensing side. And then, of course, we have operations. Um, We've got a finance group that uh, actually we brought down to two people and were able to repurpose those positions by moving to the Innovate database, which we were super excited about. Um, And then we have a few people in our docketing group. Um, We were able to take one of the positions out of finance and move that to compliance because we all have seen Um, just the regulations that are coming down. And uh, we got ourselves in a little bit of trouble, had to dig out of that. And now um, I I think they actually look at us as a model. Um, And then we have obviously a couple of people doing material transfer agreements and helping, you know, advise the licensing team. So we have a a JD in this role, one in one of the two roles um, who helps advise the licensing team on the contracting piece. Um, And then we have a, a couple of people doing administrative help in the office. So altogether, all in, we're about 24 with a few contractors that help us out. So I would call us a medium-sized office. Um, But I I think the important thing to note is it's really still a cradle-to-grave model here. And I think one of the things um, I learned in my research about your office that makes it um, additionally unique is you have a tech transfer trainee program Can you tell us a little bit about this program, maybe the history behind it and how many people have gone through it to date? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I actually started my career in tech transfer as a trainee at Children's in Boston. And so when, you know, and you alluded to this at the beginning, right? The tech transfer profession is so robust in Boston because you've got all these hospitals and you've got these universities And I remember, you know, getting together as tech transfer offices in our own little cluster, which was so fun to learn from one another. And when I moved to St. Louis, it was hard to even hire people. And so I brought this program here as a way to train the talent in our office coming out of, you know, mostly Washington University's graduate 
school, but we have had um, trainees come from different universities as well. And we started this in 07. So we've had well over 30 individuals uh, come through the office. It's a six-month program. And we've hired a good majority of those individuals. We will hire them, you know, if they work out and we have a position in the office. But if they don't, you know, if we didn't have a position for them, they have found such wonderful roles in law firms, in consulting, in venture. Um, And so sort of we have our trainees now interspersed in in our networks, um, as well as in other parts of the country in tech transfer. So um, it's been a great way just, I guess, to grow the office and to grow our our network as well. Um, But when when I was doing it at Children's, it was three months. Um, Here, we thought we would do it a little bit longer. And we took a six-month approach. And the first two months were really sort of go ahead and observe everybody figure out, you know, the, what this is and what this means for you and your career. So sort of like the shadow, but we actually find that they start contributing, you know, pretty, pretty heavily after a month time, they're able to do a lot of our technical assessments and our diligence. And, um, you know, month three and four, it was supposed to really dig in, but again, we find that this really starts in month one and, you know, by the fourth month, they're able to do a lot of the easy contracting, definitely the diligence, and they're getting a lot more exposure to um, just the office in general. And then, you know, the last couple of months, we're looking at, are they a good fit for our office if we have a position or how could we help them be successful in this profession if we don't? Um, so it really has been a wonderful program for us. We have it endowed. Um, so the money doesn't have to come out of our budget. And that means we don't have to trade this off. That's how important it is to us. That's fantastic. Congratulations. That sounds like quite the program. And it sounds like you've done an excellent job with it. Thanks. It's fun. Sounds like it. So, Nicole, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about numbers. Um, Would you share with us how many invention disclosures, patent filings, revenue generating agreements, and other things your office has had perhaps in the last year? Yeah. So again, we are a mid-range size office, but we do have a very large research budget. And so um, our university for NIH dollars is bringing in about $750 million. And when you add in the university portion, we're looking at a billion-dollar you know, research budget. And so from that, Um, We have been, over the last 10 years, growing our invention disclosures and our activities overall. So last year, uh, even during COVID, we landed higher than we expected. So we had uh, just over 240 invention disclosures, which was up 10% from the previous year. We file each year, you know, sometime between, uh, some amount between 350 and 400 patent filings. Um, And we've been tracking upward on issued patents. Last year, we had about 60 of those. And our agreements, we always find are sort of at the top when we do benchmarking. Um, So last year, we had 130 revenue generating agreements. um, And this continues to go up. This year is going to be another big year for these revenue generating agreements. And we've been thinking more and more about okay, how do we automate some of this? Because we just don't, you know, at some level here, when when does it tap out? And so we have worked on automating some of the more simple agreements. Um, 
In that 130, we did about, uh, I want to say 12 exclusive licenses last year and six startups. So that's about our average for sort of, if you add ELAs and startups together, it's usually about 15. Um, And then for the last few years, we've been around $10 million in revenue. So I would say, you know, room for growth for us in some areas, but I think you know, right now we're at capacity with the number of people and the work that we have. Well, congratulations. Those are some impressive numbers. We have worked really hard to convince our innovators um, that we, we, we are easy to work with. And I think it shows. Yeah, I would say so in those, those numbers that you just recited to us. So I think that's a good transition to talk about what you think, Nicola, is most important in managing innovations to have the greatest opportunity for success. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I think it has to start with the relationships you build. And so I just alluded to this. When I first came into running the office, we had a decent reputation with faculty. I would say it wasn't bad. It could get better. Um, and I think, you know, now what we've done is worked really hard to become transparent in the office so that faculty know how are we making decisions and why are we making this, these decisions. Um, and we've worked hard to say, if we, if you think we didn't make the right decision, you can have this IP back and go ahead and do what you can with it. Um, so, and then we've put in, you know, in, um, New programs, like we have a quick start license, and I know there's some, you know, back and forth about express licensing, but for us, it really was a stake in the ground that said, hey, we're going to work with you. And we use this, even when we don't do an express license startup, we kind of use the tenant behind it. So again, first and foremost, you want faculty to want to work with you. Um, And you want innovators to say, yeah, you should go to OTM because they're a good group to work with and they provide a lot of value, right? So you can't do anything um, unless you have those relationships uh, in place. And then I think second is really understanding the technology that you do have, um, being able to go out and grow your network to get the feedback you need to make good decisions. But then also that feedback helps you decide you have a gap fund, for example, at the university, where do you place your bets? And how do you, how do you think about your technologies? Um, you know, we're part service organization, but we're part asset management as well. And so you kind of need to do both as well as you can. So that feedback helps with that asset management piece. And I think for us, being a, a transparent and able to provide that back to our faculty And to be able to say, this is why we're making decisions around our gap funding money. Um, Or, hey, we had this really interesting conversation. We think you should come into that conversation and let's see where it goes. So, you know, being able to open our networks more. So I I think those are the critical things. I mean, we all want to license more, but it really is about the shots on goal. And you can't get shots on goal unless you have people who want to work with you and you make smart decisions. So, Nicole, I wanted to ask you about corporate partners and the role they've played at Tech Transfer at WashU. Sure. Um, so we have we have been building out more of these partnerships as a university, you know, strategy, major research university that probably didn't have the number of these partnerships that we should have. Um, and so 
you know, a few years back, we became a Pfizer CTI site. And then since then, we have built out um, master research collaboration agreements with some local companies like Mallinckrodt and Centene, which are both public. Um, and also, we have a group that we've built it out with, with called Kingdom Capital. And they were a local VC from somebody um, at Worldwide Technologies, which is a global company, but headquartered here in St. Louis, who wanted to really give back. And what, what has been nice about each of these partnerships is they're structured a little bit differently. And so they appeal to faculty in different ways. So what I really like is just have a buffet, if you will, of opportunities that I can present to faculty because some of them may not be interested um, in the deal structure or the terms. And others might say, yeah, that really works for me. Um, so that's how we've approached a lot of these partnerships. And, you know, when you when you have corporate partnerships, people are always asking, what's been successful? What does success mean? And I think it's really important to talk about that with your partner because it's different in each of these agreements. We may have only one program, you know, running in one of these one of these relationships, but to our partner and to us, that's very successful. And in other ones, we might have three to four programs running in them, um, and, and that's fine too. But we, in each of these, the one or the four, we wouldn't be able to move those projects forward without the partner. It would be a whole lot harder. And I think I always say to people, tech transfer isn't really a competitive field. And it's because the partners are looking for just different things. And it could be nuances in what they're looking for. Um, so, you know, to us, building out these partnerships has been invaluable. We've seen faculty be able to drive projects forward. Um, into licenses, um, you know, originating from a sponsored research even, or in the case of Kingdom Capital, just working really closely with our faculty to spin out companies that, you know, it, it maybe had technology that has been sitting there a while and, and, and help them get it out of the university. So, um, yeah, we are looking to build more of these and actively working on them. Now, what about the role of philanthropic organizations, things like the Gates Center? Do you have any of those types of organizations involved on campus? Yeah, sure. So, you know, philanthropic organizations have always been critical to university research and basic discovery. And you can see some of them taking more of an active role in thinking about translating these discoveries and, and getting involved in sort of that process of translation and licensing. Um, we've had success with a group called the Harrington Discovery Institute, um, and I believe they're located in Ohio, but they have a team that will come in and work with the faculty member, and they have, you know, sort of a foundational mindset, but also a business mindset, and there's a huge education component tied to the money that they give to move the projects forward. Um, so I think we've had three or four programs go through HDI, and um, our faculty have come out smarter, and they obviously have had money that to move the projects forward. And we get really excited to license those projects because our partners can see that we have really knowledgeable faculty members and good assets. Nicole, could you describe for us some of your university's biggest success stories in terms of successful technologies, startups, things like that? Yeah, I, I love this question because when I first came into the role of leading the office, 
we didn't know. We didn't know what we had, um, and we couldn't really talk about these. And and I think for tech transfer offices, um, you know, yes, everyone knows about these big deals, but sometimes it's really important to remind people of what came out of your university, what they can be proud of, you know, what the NIH or the NSF or, or another organization funded that manifested into a product that is impacting society. So we went through a deep dive and you can actually get on our website and see the video we produced around this. Um, but WashU had the test for heart attack. That came out of WashU. And I always tell people, you know, if you have a loved one that walks through the emergency room or actually, you know, gets transported into the emergency room and has this test, you know, that was Jack Ladenson's work from Washington University that put those proteins together for detection. Um, we've also had major success with a, a copyright tool, which is fun to talk about. Yeah, it is. Um, it's called the Clinical Dementia Rating Scale, and it's used in virtually every clinical trial around dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, and, and that came out of WashU. And even though it wasn't a patented asset, it took a lot of work to validate. And we license this asset at least 50 times a year. Um, so it is, uh, you know, it's not a huge moneymaker. It's a really good feel-good story. Um, and then, of course, we have other ones that are in development that we're super excited about, like C2N Diagnostics. For me personally, that was one of the first startup deals that I worked on. And so it's very exciting to see where they are. C2N is an interesting company because it started off as a diagnostic side. And um, really what they started looking at when we launched the company was how can you know um, how proteins are changing with Alzheimer's? How are they getting cleared out of your body and how are they getting produced? And so really that was their, that was their technology at the time. And they thought that they could apply that to um, all of the major players developing amyloid drugs. And we could give a readout on whether their drug was going to work or not. And, you know, that was a hard, that was a hard technology to license. And we realized it was going to be hard. Um, we maybe had some plays with a contract research organization, but the faculty members weren't super thrilled about that. So it was one of those fortuitous, you know, moments where you find your CEO running on the treadmill next to you at the gym thing. Um, and, you know, C2M was birthed. And over that time, so that was back, I want to say, in 2008. And C2N has taken a lot of turns. They became um, a therapeutics when all the amyloid uh, started to fail, all the amyloid drugs started to fail. They, they licensed a tau therapeutic from us. And that's in phase two clinical trials right now. So, you know, it's partnered with Abiola, that's in the public domain. Um, but we're really excited to watch where that goes. And then on the other side, they've built up this very robust diagnostic space no longer in sort of this contract research services, but they launched a test called Precivity AD just this last, I think, December. And this is the first lab-based blood test for Alzheimer's. So, you know, we're super excited about, about C2M. All the local St. Louis company, they have not moved out of St. Louis, so they're bringing a lot of value to the region and the ecosystem. Um, and then you know, we have a couple of other startups to watch. Disarm Therapeutics was just purchased by Eli Lilly in a very early discovery, sort of still discovery stage, but they're developing small molecule candidates that target the SARM-1 pathway, which our faculty members showed was a central protein that drives axonal degradation. 
Um, and, and so that's just a real fun story. And then Encodia is another one of our companies that just last week raised $75 million. Um, and this company is developing new generation of protein analysis tools based on single molecule protein sequencing. Um, neither of those are actually in St. Louis, but they're fun to watch. We have one other that I'll allude to, um, and it's a company called Centiar. And they are developing um, sort of virtual reality for the operating room. And so right now they are able to place catheters using virtual reality. And what I love about this company is, and I know you, you want to talk about you know, women inventors, but Jen Silva and her husband, John Silva, are the founders of this company. And this was one of our very first women-founded um, startups at, Saint, at Wash U. It's a St. Louis story. They're still in St. Louis. They're raising a lot of money. Um, and it's just a really great story to see them take off. So. That's, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Those are some really great success stories. Yeah, they're fun to talk about. Absolutely. Well, with a lot of success also come some challenges. Do you have some challenges you want to talk about or things that your office is working on? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I mentioned to you that we've been working really hard over the last, you know, five or six years to get faculty to trust us and want to work with us, you know, even more than they did prior to that. And, you know, you start to see where you're making progress and you're, you know, certainly we're an under-resourced, understaffed office like many tech transfer offices are. Um, And we've been able to make headway despite that. But, you know, one of the things is we'd like to put stronger startups there. And so we've got a fantastic ecosystem in St. Louis that helps us do that. But I think there's more work to be done on that front. And so some of the things that we are thinking about at the university is how do we better educate faculty? How do we work with them um, in a one-on-one capacity to really help them think about what this startup would look like, why it's a good idea, you know, to maybe go after venture funding versus SBAIR, Um, and to help them launch these companies. So, you know, we're actively working on that. We are, we actually just got an accelerator grant from the National Security Innovation Network that that is helping us do this on the med tech space. And obviously, you know, we're we're a life science institution. Our cortex district, which is a very strong player in our ecosystem is life science, but there's a lot of work to be done for med tech. And so getting this accelerator was one way that we could bring in industry and investors to have these one-on-one conversations with our faculty with the goal of spinning out, you know, more med tech companies. Um, So that's one thing we're working on. You know, another challenge is, um, you know, sort of thinking about the next generation and training tech transfer uh, in the St. Louis region, you know, with jobs prospects, whether they stay here at Washington University or how do we make sure that they have job opportunities in the St. Louis region? Because we want to retain this talent here um, and just sort of building the talent growth and ecosystem um, in St. Louis. And, and what role does tech transfer play in that? So, Nicole, switching gears a little bit, I want to spend the remainder of the podcast talking about your work as a leader in analyzing the disparities between male and female innovators and entrepreneurs and the programs you and WashU have developed to close the gap. Can you tell us about your work in this area? Sure. Um, Yeah, so this is a place that we have spent a lot of time. um, And what happened was at Washington University, 
we had a new provost around the time 2012, and we were about to embark on really thinking about innovation and entrepreneurship um, as a mission, as, as sort of a third mission for the university, in addition to, you know, teaching and research missions. And at that time, I had actually been learning about the disparity. I didn't know a lot about it prior to that. And I thought, well, you know, is this an opportunity to do something and bring women along so we don't, you know, widen the gap if we're going to go ahead and make innovation entrepreneurship something robust at WashU? We don't want to lose a whole set of potential innovators. And so we applied for a diversity and inclusion grant to our provost office. We won that, which was exciting. Um, And what we did was we used that to create a program called Women in Innovation and Technology, or WIT. And that that is our internal facing program. And it's really based on just a few things. Um, There's a lot of barriers that women face and frankly, other underrepresented populations. There are barriers they face, but we thought, well, what are the ones that we can do something about? And we felt that that was, well, we can provide the education and help them understand the language of commercialization. We can open up our networks to people and um, we can invite them to participate because a lot of times women don't feel invited to participate um, or they don't see role models that look like themselves. So those were the three areas that we built our program on. Um, And let's see, we launched that in 2013 and and we've kind of built on that to where we are today. programming on the national front for women entrepreneurs in something called Equalize. Yeah, and we're going to talk about Equalize here in a little bit, but I did want to ask you um, a little bit more about your work with um, WIT. Um, And I know, like you said, it started in 2013, but I think you also published a paper in 2018, didn't you, where you looked at and you reported on some of the internal data that you collected um, through your office with respect to things like invention disclosures and patent applications and the participants who were involved in the WIT program to see if it improved participation of women. Can you share a little bit with us about what you found and reported on in this paper? Yeah, that, yeah. so we felt it was important to put something out into the public domain because a lot of people had looked at this um, using name recognition and trying to apply, you know, gender name norms and algorithms. Um, But, you know, we felt, well, we can do this because we are, you know, a single institution. We probably have enough data to look at this. And so we started tracking in, I think, 2014. And what what our paper showed was that three years um, prior to programming and then three years after, and that that we could see a robust increase in the number of, you know, women innovators that engaged us in the invention disclosures. um, And we also looked at patent filings. What we've seen over the years is when we started this program, we were just around or just under 30% of women uh, on a disclosure. And now we're over 50%, which has been really fun to see that. Now that's not Um, all faculty, that is all inventors and looking at all invention disclosures. You know, the challenge for us with, if we look just at individual faculty members is we've lost a lot of our women who have gone through WIT 
um, who have gone on to get wonderful jobs at other places and chair, you know, chairs of departments. And so it's hard to control the factors, um, you know, some of the factors that play into this. But what we can control is looking at the number of disclosures we have and making sure that our patent filings are consistent and with um, what we are seeing on an invention disclosure percentage. And we do see the number, you know, the percentage of women faculty engaging us go up as well. Um, so you can start to track this. We do it through HR. Every year we get, we sort of send over the names of our inventors and they send back um, sort of identi identifying information. And by the way, we're just starting to look at other types of demographic information. So um, ethnicity is one of them that we're going to be looking at, but it's a little bit of a different challenge than women because there, there's certainly not as many are underrepresented um, minorities as there are women. Um, but I think it's important to really, even if you're not putting the data out there, to know your own data and are you having an impact and what is that impact, which is not always measured in just individuals who you're getting at. Because like I said, some of ours have left and they're more knowledgeable and they're doing good things at their new institution. But really, um, it has helped our office to think about when we bio, for example, um, are we bringing all of our inventions, all the texts that we want to talk about? What's the makeup of the inventors behind us? And, you know, I don't say to my team, well, we're, all of these inventions were brought by, were produced by white men. Um, let's, let's just put this back on the shelf. It, it, it allows us to have a conversation to say, okay, it looks like we're going to bio with a lot of inventions that were created by white men. What's in our pipeline that we should be thinking about? And how do we prepare, you know, some of the, the technologies that are not being invented by white men for bio? What do we need to do as an office? Um, what support can we give to these inventors? How can we link them into the networks and the, the programs that can help them build up their um, technologies? So really having this whole program has, you know, we can count numbers, but it really has given us an opportunity to, to discuss as an office how we holistically support inventors. Now, you've collected a lot of data and information as a result of the WIT program. What would you say some of the challenges, hurdles, or barriers are that you've learned about women participating in tech transfer and commercialization? Yes. So like I said, one of them is one of the biggest barriers is we can't control when, when our faculty leave and go get really great positions elsewhere. Um, but, you know, another thing was, and we looked at this this past spring when COVID hit, we had a surplus of inventions come our way and the women fell off. They weren't disclosing to us at the, in the same way that men were disclosing to us. So, you know, really it, it allows us to think about how do we better support these inventors? And what are the differential needs that inventors have? Um, and how can we be more uh, in tune with that to help them? Do you have any theories as to why that was? Why the women all of a sudden dropped off? Yeah, so there was some good articles about actually women academics um, and the challenge between, you know, having your children home yeah. in a virtual setting and doing school and... Um, you know, needing to support your parents uh, in, in sort of what they were going through if you had elderly parents. 
So there was a, there was information out there and women felt, you know, what are these trade-offs again between thinking about tenure and publishing and commercialization and, and all of this went together. And I think women just got inundated in the pandemic. We've, we've started to see the numbers come back for sure, but it does make you think um, when these pandemics happen, we really need to pay attention to women and underrepresented minorities because their challenges are different. And we need to be mindful of them if we want to have them not fall further behind. Absolutely. I think that's a really excellent point. So through all this work that you've done, what do you think you've learned about how women inventors think? Can you give us some insights there? Yeah. So in 2018, we had to, uh, we were invited to submit for an award to the Association of American Medical Colleges. And in putting that together, I went back and I talked to a number of women that had come through our Women Inventors program. And, you know, I started thinking, one of, one of the women said, you know, what was so wonderful about your program was when I came in to WashU, I was a researcher. And then I went through WIT and I knew I was an inventor. And I thought to myself, wow, if I had put her male counterpart through like a WIT program, he would have had all these connections. He would have thought about this, the venture capitalist who came to talk. And maybe that person was going to fund his company. And he probably would have networked with one of the CEOs that came over. And maybe that was a person that could start his company. And I think women just wear these hats sequentially. And so one of the things we did was to, to put Equalize in place to address that exact problem. Because she what we... From, from that statement, it said to me, okay, I'm a researcher. I gave you all this information. I'm an inventor. That means I filed a patent, so I understand that process. But I'm not going to call myself an entrepreneur until I've launched a company. Um, and, and so I think this is all very different than how men think. And, and we just have to be in tune with that. And we have to honor that. There's, there's nothing wrong or right about either scenario. They're just different. And we have to understand these differences and what support we can provide on either side. And speaking of Equalize, I know um, that's a cross-university mentorship program and pitch platform for women academic entrepreneurs. Can you tell us more about this program? And I think you're gearing up for Equalize 2021, aren't you? Yes. Applications just came in January 31st. So we um, are looking through them now and we're super excited to see that. It will be in September, uh, September 22nd of this year. But what we, what, what Equalize is geared towards is to really promote and empower academic women to feel and know that they are entrepreneurs. And um, the selected women will get some education through the program, and then they will get one-on-one -on -one mentorship with somebody who's in the who, who's a VC or somebody who's an investor um, or we've had serial entrepreneurs who have pulled technology out of um, academic institutions. And so, you know, some of the women come and they don't have a pitch deck. And by the end of Equalize last year, they had a pitch deck. Others had actually spun out another company, but told us that they love having the support for women. And that makes such a difference and sort of how they think about getting to the end game, that, they, that that's why they wanted to participate. So the women who participated last year, and we had 12, six in medical device and six in um, therapeutics, came with all different backgrounds, but all of them said it was an amazing program that their mentor 
was um, knowledgeable, encouraging, understood the needs of women and made their networks fully available to them. So there was one story where uh, a mentor mentee pair were on the conversation and he just pulled up his phone. This was the male mentor, just pulled up his phone and said, okay, all right, I need to put you in touch with this person, this person, this person, and I'm going to call this person right now. And so there they are on this sort of three-way um, call, but that was the, you know, that's such a great example of a mentor who's just saying, great, I'm going to pull my network up right now and we're going to do this. Um, and I think the participants were so grateful. And then, you know, after they get these, the six months of mentorship, it culminates in the pitch session. And, um, at, you know, all of the women had wonderful pitches. We actually just did a roundup with two of them as promotion for applications. Uh, I guess it was last week or the week before. And, you know, one of, one of the women did not have a pitch deck and now she has a pitch deck and she's got a company formed, which she didn't have. And they are in sort of running with this preclinical phase and have a little bit of seed money. The other woman had made connections. So she had a startup company and she made connections through Equalize that she is still having conversations with and that have gotten her to strategics that she is now aligned with and her company has just taken off. So. Um, sort of two examples there, but it, that's exactly what we were hoping for when we launched this. Yeah, and I would encourage people to go to your website and watch the, there's actually a YouTube video of those two women and it's very well done and you will really, it comes across just the tremendous impact that Equalize had. And and that one woman that you were talking about who didn't have a pitch deck, she talks about her mentor who kept reviewing it over and over and always had time to, to provide input on it. So it's really, again, it's not a long video, but it's really something that people should watch to just get a sense of the impact of that program. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And I think, you you know, there's a good point that you made in there um, that I just want to kind of pull out for a minute. But I've done a lot of work through the Autumn Women Inventors groups over the years. And, you know, we're starting to look at what helps women engage in this process of transfer and commercialization. And overwhelmingly, a lot of the data that we're starting to collect points to this fact of having a mentor who is just right there and trustworthy. Um, and the other piece is how do you actually get into the process? And so once you can get into the process and you have that person, I think women take off. But those are just key needs that women, you know, it, it's hard for them to come out and find all of this on their own. You know, there's extra committee work that they have. There's family that they have at home and they can't do a lot of stuff after hours. So really, how do we think as an industry of engaging women and other underrepresented minorities, because by the way, that they face a lot of the same barriers. How do we just get them over the hurdles of finding the entry into tech transfer and having a mentor that they can just call and, and talk to over and over again? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head that especially women are pulled in so many different directions that it's kind of like they, they just need that extra help to kind of kept them going and a good solid mentor who's going to listen, whether it's a five minute call or a 50 minute call and is always going to be responsive. And I think it's great what you've done. So congratulations. And 
Uh, that's a great segue to my next question. Given all that you've done, you've got this um, tech transfer training program, but then all this work you've done with WIT and Equalize, what's next for you and WashU in terms of closing this gap between male and female innovators and entrepreneurs? You mentioned looking at other diverse groups, but do you have other things in the works? And if so, could we get a sneak peek? Yes. Um, so it, it, our focus now, um, in addition to supporting women, um, I think what we're trying to do now with COVID and everything is do smaller clusters of, of groups with our women to just really get the network together because we've lost a little bit of that network piece, you know, being virtual. But we are turning our attention to other underrepresented groups. And I'm really scratching my head on this one. I don't have an answer yet. Um, but we've started looking at our own university data. And it's going to be really hard to make an impact at just the WashU level. And this is exactly the reason why Equalize was a national program, because we couldn't make, you know, we couldn't make progress if we just thought about it with WashU. And I think we're going to find the same thing. If underrepresented minority populations are um, at best 7% in some schools at WashU, then you think about the number of inventor of investigators that actually engage tech transfer, and you can cut that at least in half, probably more. Um, and so now you're looking at you know four percent. And if you pair that back to actual numbers, you're in the single digits. Um, and so I am starting to think about uh, global, national ways that we can actually make a difference with some of these other groups. I'm starting to think about how we talk about this with leadership to say, you know what, it might not be faculty that we're going after right now. It might be grad students and postdocs. And we're just, you know, doing some goodwill here, even though they aren't going to be inventors that drive up our invention disclosures in the same way that women are. We're going to educate and bring our networks to grad students and postdocs because they're the next generation of faculty and or uh, individuals starting companies or going into startups. And if we can create more role models um, for underrepresented minority scientists, um, that's where my mindset is. So I don't know if I have, where am I going next? I just, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And I, I think I understand the crux of the problem or where I want to go. And now it's going to be finding allies. <laughs> I think you'll find some allies on that front. I, I definitely do with some other institutions and hopefully some of those uh, allies are listening to this podcast right now and hopefully we'll reach out to you and and you can keep moving this forward. So thank you. And that's, a, I think, a, a good bridge to my next question, which is what advice would you have for people in other tech transfer offices who may be listening right now? And they're either beginning or looking to do more like you've done at WashU to close the gender gap and in invention disclosures and commercialization. Yeah, that's a great question because it feels like a daunting task sometimes. And it feels like you have to have money to be able to do this. And actually, you don't. So I think just being mindful um, and understand your data and then, you know, do small things that, that are meaningful. So when we, um, when we started, I know that we had the grant, but we have run out of that money and we're just doing this on our own money at this point. So, you know, a breakfast with a speaker, with an invite, a very specific invite to individuals to be in that room. Why are you specifically asking 
her. It's not because she's female. So we're not going to invite her because she's female, but find out some information about um, why she should be at that table and make that compelling invitation to her. Your research would fit in this industry sponsored research space. And we're going to have a speaker on that. Or, you know, I went and I talked to the chair of your department and she recommended that you were a great participant for this event. That gets you a lot farther with bringing people into the room than just to say, oh, we're doing this program for women Um, because it's very specific. So I think starting, uh, know your data, be specific on your invite and do small things. Just what I I remember one time we had... um, Uh, Sharon Simonis, who a lot of us know from Eli Lilly, was going to be sort of passing through. She wasn't even coming to Wash U. She was sort of passing through. And I said, Sharon, would you stop here for lunch and just sit down with, you know, seven to 10 of our women and talk to them about what makes a successful industry partnership, not Lilly specific, but what does it mean to get industry-sponsored research? Who's a good candidate? How to be thoughtful about your proposals. And it was such an amazing conversation um, in, in that room. That's great. And thank you for sharing that because I'm sure there are people here that uh, are listening right now who really appreciate having that advice. So Nicole, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests, if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for your office, what would those be? That's such a great question because we went through an administrative review last year. So I've given a lot of thought. (laughs) Um, One, I'm asking for an individual that can be responsible for our diversity and inclusion um, because it's getting hard for for me and others in the office where this is not our primary responsibility. Um, So that is definitely one of them on my wish list. Um, Another one, and I alluded to this earlier, is I think WashU has a lot to work with for startups, and we need some individuals within our offices to really help uh, faculty solidify what this looks like for them. Um, And then, uh, you know, I guess the last one, we have some gap fund money, but we can always use more. And we are looking for that. And I'm grateful that the university is receptive around this concept. Well, I think those are three great wishes. So good luck in getting all three. I have no doubt that uh, you will eventually get those. Thank you. Well, Nicole, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Sure. Please send me an email. Um, My email address is nmercier, that's M-E-R-C-I-E-R, at wustl.edu, which is W-U-S-T-L dot E-D-U. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Nicole. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, 
advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.